0: Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federalist Society member today at fedsoc.org. Hello, and
1: welcome to Federalist Society's webinar call. Today, December 14, 2022, we discuss parental rights and religious liberty, examining new conflicts between parents and the state. My name is Kayla Kleiss and I'm Assistant Director of Practice Groups here at the Federal Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call as the Federal Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. Today, we are fortunate to have with us as our moderator, Professor Richard Garnett, who is the Paul J. sherrill fort Howard Corporation Professor of Law and concurrent professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. Additionally, he's the founding director of Notre Dame's program on church, state, and society. Professor Garnett Teaches and writes about the freedoms of speech, association, and religion, and constitutional law more generally. He's leading authority on questions and debates regarding the role of religious believers and beliefs in politics and society. And he has published widely on these matters and is an author of dozens of law review articles and book chapters. I'll leave it to him to introduce the rest of our panel. As a housekeeping note throughout the panel, if you have any questions, please submit them through the question and answer feature so that our speakers will have access to them when we get to that portion of today's webinar. With that, thank you all for being with us today. Professor Garnett, the floor is yours.
2: Thank you so much. Uh, It's my pleasure to introduce our our two experts for today's discussion. Uh, Following the natural law of alphabetical order, I'll start with uh, Ryan Bangert, who is the Senior Vice President for Strategic Initiatives and Special Counsel to the President at the Alliance Defending Freedom. Before joining ADF, uh, Bangert served in the offices of both the Texas and the Missouri Attorneys General. And before that, uh, he was a litigation partner at Baker Botts, where he was a member of the firm's commercial litigation and appellate practice sections. Uh, Bangert earned his JD from Southern Methodist University, and he clerked for the Honorable Patrick E. Higginbotham on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. We're also joined uh, by Professor James Dwyer, who is the Arthur B. Hansen Professor of Law at William & Mary. He taught previously at Chicago-Kent and at the University of Wyoming. And before entering the academy, uh, Professor Dwyer practiced with the Sutherland Asbill and the Cudair Brothers law firms in Washington, D.C. Professor Dwyer earned a Ph.D. from Stanford and his law degree from Yale Law School. He teaches and is widely and very prominently published in the areas of family law, education law, constitutional law, and law and religion, and probably other fields that I'm forgetting. Uh, so we'll start today with uh, uh, with Ryan Bangert, and again, for all of you who are on the webinar, please do feel free to submit your questions
0: through the Q&A function uh, on Zoom. Ryan, take it away. Thank you so much, Professor Garnett and Professor Dwyer. It's a pleasure to be with you, and Kayla, thank you for hosting this uh, webinar today on a very important and current topic. Uh, parental rights have taken a leading role in today's legal and political conversation driven in large part by the confluence of COVID lockdowns and the introduction of controversial critical theory concepts to K through 12 classrooms. And these challenges I would posit are forcing a renewed focus on the scope and application of parental rights in the law. Now the prerogative of parents to control the upbringing education and formation of their children has long been recognized within the common law tradition. And building on that tradition, the US Supreme Court has for a century found that parental rights are among the fundamental rights protected by the U.S. Constitution. And among the contexts in which the court has made those holdings include the ability of parents to select private versus public education, presumptions of parental fitness for custody, uh, parental rights to determine who has access to children, and the right to direct medical care. Now, these precedents, while venerable, are decades old, and new turf battles between state power and traditional notions of parental authority have been erupting in plain sight, one need look no further than President Biden's recent pronouncement earlier this year while honoring the 2022 National and State Teachers of the Year, in which he stated, quote, they're all our children. They're not somebody else's children. They're like yours when they're in the classroom. Or take the statement by Terry McAuliffe during his September 2021 debate against Glenn Youngkin during the Virginia gubernatorial race, in which he said, quote, I'm not going to let parents come into schools and actually take books out and make their own decisions. I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. Now, I wanna talk briefly about this turf battle and some of the specific issues raised that in my view can and should be resolved by application and reaffirmation of a robust doctrine of internal rights. And the lineage of this turf battle goes back about a decade. Since 2010, the rise of pervasive social media has led to decreased mental health on the part of teens as documented extensively by Dr. Jean Twenge, And a symptom of that social media consumption has been documented by Lisa Littman and Abigail Schreier as rapid onset gender dysphoria, which has entered the lexicon, as teenagers, in particular females, began identifying as transgender in ways that departed from historical patterns. Now, these trends collided in 2020 with the COVID lockdowns, school closures forced by COVID, forced schooling into homes via virtual education, and parents saw for the first time in many cases what was being taught to their children. And what they found was, in many cases, horrifying to them. They saw critical theory being espoused in K-12 education. They saw policies around social transition of kids, uh, locker room policies. Uh, all of these things came to a head and precipitated what many commentators now call the 2021 parents' revolt, parents becoming extremely active and engaged with their school boards over these and other policies. Loudoun County, Virginia, famously was ground zero for the parents' revolt, precipitating a letter from Attorney General Garland, which he famously insinuated that parents are domestic terrorists. Uh, Many political commentators credit the parents' revolt in driving the upset victory of Glenn Youngkin in the governor's race in Virginia. And even carrying forward to last month in the 2022 midterm elections, one of the underreported stories is the surprising resonance and success of parents' rights groups like Moms for Liberty, which achieved a greater than 50% win rate in over 500 school board races in which they endorsed parents' rights candidates just last month. Now, this clash between claims of parental authority and claims of state power to override or ignore parents' wishes has set the table for this reinvigorated discussion that we're having today. Now, I want to briefly examine the roots of parental rights claims in common law and American constitutional law before I turn to these, con- these, these current issues. And I think looking at the common law and the court's adoption of that common law is warranted by the logic applied by the court just last term in Dobbs, where it confirmed that with respect to non-enumerated fundamental rights, the court will look for some grounding in history. In the words of the court, non-enumerated rights must be deeply rooted in our history and tradition, and essential to our nation's scheme of ordered liberty. And I think parental rights pass that test. They have been long recognized at English common law. For instance, John Locke in his Second Treatise noted that the power then that parents have over their children arises from the duty which is incumbent on them to take care of their offspring during the imperfect state of childhood. Similarly, Blackstone viewed the duty of parents toward their children to encompass the maintenance, protection and education of their children. Echoing Locke and Blackstone, modern legal scholar, Melissa Michela. Has pointed out that the authority of parents is, quote, natural and original, not conventional or derivative of the authority of the state. It arises from the intimate relationship between parents and children, which gives parents, in her words, the most direct and immediate special obligation to care for and exercise parental authority over their children. And parents' rights arise from and echo this special obligation. Parents' rights or exist to empower parents to discharge that obligation well and satisfy the dictates of their conscience in doing so. And Michelle also notes that parental rights are a distinct sphere of authority and sovereignty that do have overlapping features with state power and authority, but they're different. They're different in that parents have an obligation to promote the direct good of their children, while states have the broader obligation to promote the common good of society. And when it comes to promoting the direct good of parents, states should superintend that only in situations of general, genuine abuse and neglect. Now, I also wanna talk a little bit about this concept of the family as a unit, the family unit as an institution in society, much like government and the church with its own sphere of sovereignty or authority. This concept too has a pedigree in the common law. In the phrase of Edmund Burke, the family is quote, the origin of the little platoon we belong to in society and the germ of public affections. And this concept of separate but overlapping spheres of authority, institutional authority is not foreign to the US law. Under the church autonomy doctrine, for instance, courts already recognized differing spheres of authority held by the church and the state. And enforce that as a matter of law Moreover, there's an intensely practical reason to respect parental rights. Namely, parents are, in the vast majority of cases, the most heavily invested in the well being of their own children and best positioned to know how best to meet their own children's unique needs. Chris Tollefson has connected this practical principle to the principle of subsidiarity, as explained by Pope John Paul II. The larger so- social institutions of society, in this case, the state, should not take over functions. That could be better performed by individuals or smaller social realities. Now, these concepts in the common law find their, find their place in the U.S. Supreme Court's adjudication and uh, jurisprudence on personal rights in four different ways. And I want to outline those very briefly. First, the U.S. Supreme Court has crafted a century-old line of cases that affirm the fundamental nature of personal rights in Troxel the court found that the liberty interest of parents in the care, custody, and control of their children is perhaps the oldest of the fundamental liberty interests recognized by the court. In Santosky versus Kramer, in which the court found that a clear and convincing evidence burden of proof applies in child removal proceedings, the court found that, quote, the freedom of personal choice in matters of family life is a fundamental liberty interest protected by the 14th Amendment. But beyond simply finding that parental rights are a matter of fundamental importance under the constitution, the court has leaned into and affirmed the pre-political nature of those rights. For instance, in JR versus Parham, which involved uh, the ability of parents to civilly commit kids, the court found, quote, our jurisprudence historically has reflected Western civilization concepts of the family as a unit with broad parental authority over minor children. And in the famous case of Wisconsin versus Yoder, the Supreme Court found, quote, the history and culture of Western civilization reflect a strong tradition of parental concerns for the nurture and upbringing of their children. This primary role of the parents in the upbringing of their children is now established beyond debate as an enduring American tradition. And third, the US Supreme Court has recognized that the connection between parental duties toward children echoes parental rights and reinforces those rights. For instance, in Meyer versus Nebraska, a very early case decided by the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, finding that parents do have a right uh, to have their parochial schools teach foreign languages to children in Nebraska. The courts wrote, quote, corresponding to the right of control, it is the natural duty of the parent to give his children or her children education suitable to their station in life. And nearly all the states, including Nebraska, enforced this obligation By compulsory laws. Again, drawing a line between the right of parents to control education and their corresponding duty to provide that education. Likewise, in Yoder, the court pointed to Meyer noting that the duty of parents to prepare children for adult obligation must be read to include the inculcation of moral standards, religious beliefs, and elements of good citizenship, and that duty echoed and reinforced a right, in this case in Yoder, of parents to remove their children from school prior to the age at which the state said they had and children had to be educated through. And fourth, and very importantly, the court has rejected the view, consistently rejected the view that children are mere wards or creatures of the state. Again, in Meyer, echoing back and harkening back to the age of the Greeks and the tradition of Sparta, to remove children from the home at the age of seven and encamp them in barracks for teaching and training by the state. The court noted that our tradition in the United States touches on the relation between individuals and states, which are wholly different from those, I'm sorry, the the, the tradition of Sparta touches on a relation between individual and the state, which are wholly different from those upon which our Western institutions rest. And again, in Pierce versus Society of Sisters, the court found the child is not the mere creature of the state. Those who nurture him and direct his destiny have the right coupled with the high duty, again, echoing the connection between rights and duties to recognize and prepare him for additional obligations in society. So let's fast forward to today. Where are parental rights under threat? Where do parental rights make a difference? Well, the parents' revolt, I think gives us a roadmap. The parents' revolt was taken in response to a handful of things, number of things that have happened in the public school system, uh, areas where ADF, my Mm -hmm. firm, has been directly involved. I want to give you an example from Harrisonburg School District. Harrisonburg, Virginia is a rural school district uh, that has adopted a policy concerning the social transition of minor students that we have seen replicated all across the country. And I'm going to attempt to share my screen now uh, so you can see firsthand exactly what that policy entails. So this is a slide that we uh, we have taken from uh, our litigation with Harrisonburg. This is a slide that was shown to teachers during their teacher training, and how they were to treat and deal with students who presented at school desiring to identify as a gender different than their biological sex. Teachers were instructed that if a student in this situation presents himself or herself on day one, on day one, the student, the teachers are directed always to utilize the student's preferred name and pronouns, to respect the student's choice and privacy, and to share that information confidentially with the student's assigned counselor. But it went beyond this. And the policy then directly spoke to parents' rights. And here's what it had to say. Parent communication. A student's gender transition should be considered confidential, even with respect to parents. If teachers are unaware, whether a student's parent or guardian is in support of a name change or pronoun change, they're not directed to talk to the parents, they're they're directed to connect with the school's counselor. And if a student has not shared their new gender identity with the parent guardian, teachers are specifically told it is not appropriate to take the lead on sharing this information or to contact the parent or guardian to ask permission to utilize the preferred name. Moreover, if the parent guardian is not aware, teachers should not utilize the student's preferred name, At should use the student's preferred name at school, but not in communication with parents or guardians. They are to be t- treated differently under this policy. Now, I believe, and I would argue, that this policy directly contravenes our tradition of parental rights in a variety of ways. For instance, parents have a fundamental right to direct the healthcare of their children. This policy puts teachers in the position of directing children's healthcare. Parents have a fundamental right to direct the spiritual formation and education of their children. This policy undermines those aspects of parental rights as well. It also goes beyond that. The policy assumes a conflict between parents and children on the question of gender identity. It also assumes that parents who are non-affirming of social transition are somehow unfit to even know about, much much less make decisions about these transition decisions. Finally, the policy presumes to place teachers in the position of making decisions in the place of parents about the appropriate response to a child's expression of gender discomfort. Now, we've already litigated this question In one case, Rickard versus Geary County School Board in Kansas, which adopted a very similar policy. We recently at ADF sued the school district in Geary County on behalf of a teacher named Pam Rickard. The district had a policy very similar to Harrisonburg, in which the school was directed to keep, quote unquote, two books, one book, Internal Facing, where the student's new preferred identity was recorded, and an External Facing book which was the the side of the house, the side of the school book, where teachers, Mm -hmm. where, where parents had access. That side of the book, parents would only be presented with the student's biological and given name. Now, we argued that this requirement, that teachers treat students differently, violated their fundamental free exercise right under the First Amendment. The school retorted and said, no, there's actually a compelling government interest to force teachers to treat children differently in these circumstances. And that is, parents may not be affirming. The school has an obligation to cut those non-affirming parents out of the equation. Now, the court rejected that argument and held that teachers did properly have a free exercise right not to follow this policy. But in so doing, the court rejected the district's argument that a compelling interest existed to cut parents out. And here's what the court said. Presumably, the district may be concerned that some parents are unsupportive of their child's desire to be referred to by a name other than a legal name. Or the district may be concerned that some parents will be unsupportive, if not contest the use of pronouns for their child that the parent views as discordant with the child's biological sex. But this merely proves the point that the district's claimed interest is an impermissible one, because it is intended to interfere with the parent's exercise of a constitutional right to raise their children as they see fit. And whether the district likes it or not, that constitutional right includes the right of a parent to have an opinion and to have a say in what a minor child is called and by what pronouns they are referred. Professor Garnett, I believe I am out of time and I will yield the floor to my colleague James Dwight.
2: Ryan, thanks very much. Uh, Jim, the floor is yours.
3: Thank you. Hi, everyone. I'm going to offer up for discussion some sociological observations, then some jurisprudential clarifications, and lastly, some historical corrections. So with respect to sociological observations, uh, I would say that the issues Ryan has identified uh, that youth are dealing with are complex and challenging ones for them and for families. Uh, And I think we could and maybe should find common ground on some objectives in uh, addressing these situations. Uh, One is that we should listen to youth who are going through these uh, experiences, also to adults who went through the experiences as children and uh, try to learn from them. We should respond to youth with compassion and understanding uh, as best we can. Uh, And we should try to keep the political temperature surrounding these uh, situations as low as we can. Uh, And my sense is that talk of parents' rights uh, is antithetical to all three of these objectives. Uh, First of all, it shifts attention from youth to parents and parents' interests. Uh, I think it encourages parents to focus on their own interests, their own position. Are they being respected? Uh, And to dismiss views of other people as impertinent. Uh, They will tend to view their situation not so much as one of responsibility, as one of entitlement uh, and ownership. Uh, And I think it makes a child's struggles the site of ideological warfare. It communicates the message that parents' values should win some kind of battle Uh, And Anyone who disagrees with them should be silenced. Uh, And I think uh, all of that uh, just makes the situation more difficult for families and for children. Uh, And I think a lot of the clamor for parents' rights comes not from parents who are themselves in these situations. I mean, to some extent, yes, but a lot of it, I think, is just from people who are incensed that someone else's values are driving... Uh, public policy and legislation. They don't want those values to be embodied in law. And so in that sense, it is a site of ideological warfare instead of a child-centered effort to do the best we can for kids in this situation. Uh, And the same would be true about talk of state's rights. I don't think that's very helpful either. I think it would misplace attention that the state has some kind of interest at stake that should be controlling I would encourage to focus on on the state instead of on children's needs, and it would stoke ideological fires. With respect to jurisprudential clarifications, I think that before talking about parents' rights, one ought to have a clear understanding of what rights are, how they function, what plausible normative bases there are for ascribing them, uh, and uh, as well as some legal concepts that correlate with rights. So a right is a legal advantage and entitlement that entails duties on the part of other people owed to the right holder. So the claim that parents have certain rights against the state means that the state owes duties to parents uh, as uh, in that role. Duties are owed to persons because of interests those persons have. So if the empirical basis for a claim of right is some individual's interests that are said to be very important, then the right would be ascribed to that person. So those who proclaim parental rights are effectively asserting that parents themselves have some interest that is of such importance in these situations that it warrants imposition on states of a duty to those parents for their sake to do something or to refrain from doing something. Uh, And then thirdly, the content of the duty in the context of children's schooling, medical care, um, their counseling situation, or their identification school records, whatever. Uh, The duty that is suggested by claim of parental rights is that the state ought to enact laws that confer on parents' legal powers to control those situations, to control decision-making, to dictate in that realm how a child's life should go. So that's an extraordinary demand, right, to make based on one's own interests, that I have an entitlement to uh, control not my life, but that of some other person uh, who I happen to be in a close relationship with. And that's a unique demand in our society. And and that's not so because the parent-child relationship is unique. In fact, there are analogous relationships, right? Guardianship for incompetent adults, Adults who have mental disability, mental illness, are losing their faculties because of age, right? Uh, with respect to those caregiver relationships, the law and social discourse treat would treat any claim of entitlement as anathema, right? You don't have a right to be in the relationship. You don't have a right to control, to have authority over the other person's life. Uh, any rights that exist against inappropriate state action belong to the person whose interests are central to the, to the ward, to the dependent person. So there's several things about a claim of parental constitutional right that presumably don't sit well with members of the Federalist Society. Uh, first, it's another federal imposition on states, yeah? uh, and it's in an area that historically was left to the states. It's a claim of positive rights, not negative rights, And we generally, uh, most people suppose, our federal constitution is a charter of negative rights. Uh, So it's a claim that the states must give something to parents. It must enact legal rules that gives them legal powers. Uh, Clearly, it has no clear textual basis in the constitution. There's certainly no reference to family or parents in our federal constitution. And only a tortured and dangerous rendering of the word liberty could encompass a power to control another person's life. So liberty generally means either an absence of physical restraint, that's probably what was mostly in the mind of the founders, or a Hofeldian privilege, that is an absence of duty. Uh, And not being under a duty is quite a different thing from owning a power to control someone else's life. Uh, And there's no evidence of any original intent that ratification of the federal constitution would entail a surrender of state authority over child rearing to the federal judiciary. Lastly, a couple of points about history. So the idea that parenthood is a position of entitlement uh, is actually the opposite of the view that prevailed before the 20th century in this country. So in the 18th and 19th century, the prevailing view was instead that parenthood was an entrustment from the state, uh, pursuant to its parents' patriae authority, A, an entrustment that entailed important responsibilities, um, but not any entitlement for the sake of the parents. The responsibility, the duties were viewed as owed to both the state and to the child, uh, and I'm not endorsing the first of those by any means, but uh, as to the idea that parents owe duties to children and that's why they have this authority, this role, uh, that seems uh, appropriate to me and consistent with how we treat incompetent adults. Uh, And In fact, John Locke, whom Ryan cited, uh, expressly uh, disavowed the idea that parenthood is some kind of entitlement uh, and instead instead characterized it as a privilege. So when Justice Reynolds who authored Meyer and Pierce, uh, when McReynolds invented parental constitutional rights in the 1920s, he cited no prior authority for that proposition. Uh, And in fact, the individual who was opposing the state in Meyer v. Nebraska, a school teacher, did not even think to invoke parental constitutional rights because they didn't exist. And no one thought that that would be a thing. Uh, instead, he asserted his own economic substantive due process right to pursue an occupation. And McReynolds in dictum, gratuitously threw in this idea of parental rights, didn't even say it was a constitutional right, just invoked the notion of a parental right. Uh, and then in Pierce, two years later, he cited himself. <laughs> he just cited uh, his own dictum in Meyer as authority for parental entitlement. Uh, in fact, the Supreme Court has never held that parents have a fundamental constitutional right to control their children's upbringing. Um, is, the word fundamental does not appear in Meyer or Pierce. Uh, the plurality in Troxel decades later did characterize it uh, that way, but that was a plurality decision and it was not uh, clearly a holding. So we've done a 180 in our collective conception of parenthood uh, and I think we can't imagine the counterfactual in which we'd adhered to the original traditional understanding of parenthood in this country uh, as a trust, as an entrustment. Um, so this is just speculation on my part, but I w- would suggest that children today might be better off if we had retained that original conception um, of parenthood as uh, a responsibility and an entrustment. Uh, while also perhaps better developing doctrines of children's rights um, along the way.
2: Jim, thanks a lot. Um, again, to all of you who have uh, joined us, and there's a lot of you, uh, please do feel free to use the, the Q&A function. Uh, but I'll start off with a, a few thoughts. Um, Jim, starting with you, you suggested that um, an interest in parental rights might seem kind of anomalous for um. Federal Society members, uh, given um, the classical liberal thinking about rights that, that many federal Society members presumably hold. But, but why isn't, um, say more about your claim that the parental rights argument is an argument for positive rights. It would have struck me that it's an argument, um, like a lot of other rights-based arguments, um, a non-interference argument, a negative right. Um, that is, the, the the claim of parents' rights is a right to not have the state superintend. It's not, rather than a your know, sort of classical European-style positive right, like a right to a vacation.
3: Uh, can you say more about that? Yeah, sure, good question. So what parents are demanding when they say, we have a right, constitutional right, to uh, control this aspect of our children's lives, they're not saying, leave us alone. They are saying, we want the states, we insist that the state confer on us certain legal powers such that our preferences are legally effective will result in some change in our children's lives, and we can exclude other people from our children's situations so that, uh, you know, we can tell teachers they may not speak to our children in a certain way or the school must keep records in a certain way or the school must inform us. Uh, that is not being left alone, right? So if the state were to just leave parents alone, that means we wouldn't have any legal, special legal rules for parents, no special legal state rights for parents. Uh, it would mean that, uh, you know, parenthood is not a legal uh, role, It's uh, you can just be another individual who happens to know uh, a child. Um, and so in that sense, parents are asking for something more, right? They're insisting that the state give them something, enact some laws that create a special position for them uh, with attendant powers uh, over another person's life.
2: Thanks, Jim. Uh, Ryan, a question for you. Um, you know, you, uh, in your remarks, you made mention of some of the controversies going on with respect to gender identity and pronouns and transitions and such Um, for someone like you who's committed to parental rights are you in an awkward position uh when some states or some politicians propose that parents ought not to be permitted to uh pursue various forms of gender transition for their children i'm thinking of a few states where uh it's been proposed that uh the, the, that such transitions ought not to be permitted for minor children. Is that is that an interference with parents' rights in your view? And if not, why
0: not? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And I think it goes to the, the notion that parental rights are fundamental, but they're not unlimited or absolute. Uh, like George Will once famously quip, the most important words in politics are up to a point. And I think Dr. Michelle has a very good way of, of conceptualizing this in that parent, parent, the family and the state are separate spheres, separate institutions with separate spheres of authority and sovereignty, but that do overlap in many instances. Uh, parents, and, and this gets to, I think, uh, Jim's point, which is that parenthood is an entrustment, but it's not necessarily an entrustment by the state. The state doesn't create the family. The family is pre-political and pre-exists the state. In fact, the state would not exist without the family. It's a necessary condition for the state to exist. And so there are separate spheres of authority, but they do overlap. And in many cases, the state will, in instances of clear harm, neglect, or abuse to children, have to superintend the parental role in that area. Um, And I think that what you're talking about, state rules... laws that prohibit, at least for minors, I don't believe there are any laws that I have seen yet on the books that would actually prohibit gender transition uh, all the way up through adulthood, Uh, but certainly with respect to minors, uh, you could look at those laws as fitting within that uh, exception for uh, clear harm or abuse to minors, and I believe that's how most of the states have passed those laws, have uh, have pitched them Uh, as an exception to the parental right in cases where the state has made a determination that there's such clear evidence of harm or abuse that the state has to step in and beyond that beyond that i think there's a secondary argument which is the state has the right to control and govern the practice of healthcare, which is a market-based enterprise it is a commercial activity the state can take certain things out of the market and refuse to allow those things to be sold to individuals and in the case of parental rights the parental right cannot uh, generate a right to a commercial product that is otherwise unavailable. So I think those are two ways of conceptualizing why those laws don't necessarily infringe on a fundamental personal right. Yeah, thanks.
2: Uh, Jim, let me ask you, this is a question I'm, I'm uh, borrowing from one of our participants. You used the word, uh, I think several times, confer or entrust when you were discussing um, the relationship between parents and children. And I guess, can you talk a little bit more about maybe your, your theory of rights? I mean, do you believe that there are um, rights that are, in a sense, pre-political or not not conferred or concessed by the state, but rather um, uh, pre-exist
3: in, in normative priority, um, the state? I would characterize this as a distinction between legal rights and moral rights. Some people might refer to natural rights instead of uh, moral rights. Um, But yeah, I think we can critique existing legal rules uh, based on the moral rights we think people have. Um, But to talk about the family being pre-political or pre-existing the state uh, as an abstraction that's... Uh, sounds foreign to someone who teaches and has practiced in family law, who's been in family law courts and seen people fighting over on whom the state is can confer legal status as a parent um, and who's seen, uh, you know, these constitutional attempts to force states to enact certain laws that are protective of uh, parental authority. So on the grounds, you know, to actually have a, practical social relationship with a child um, and to have effective authority over aspects of their lives, you need laws, right? And uh, sorry to say the obvious, but laws come from the state. Uh, so in that sense, you know, state law uh, creates the basis for family life generally, which is not to say that no relationships ever arise uh, without uh, that legal basis. Um, but that's what, you know, prevents anyone from just coming up and grabbing a child and saying, well, I'm going to raise this child instead of you. Uh, The legal parent can say, no, I've got state uh, conferred status, and I can call the police and have them come and stop you from doing what you're trying to do. Uh, And we can you know, discuss what the legal rules ought to be, and in that context, invoke natural rights or moral rights and try to persuade legislators that they ought to adopt one view or the other, uh, but that doesn't change the fact that in practice, what we need are legal rules to uh, to designate people as parents and to identify what authority they have relative to what uh, authority the state uh, employees have, and relative to what children should be able to decide for themselves.
2: Uh, thanks a lot, uh, Ryan. I've got one for you, also from the Q and A from Professor Gillis, uh, Stephen Gillis, uh, w- with whose work you're probably familiar. Uh, he asks um, if Professor Dwyer's is right about the historical view that the state decides what rights and duties parents shall have then doesn't Dobbs suggest that parental rights are up for re-examination?
0: Well, I would preface my remarks by saying that I, I disagree that parental, that the family and parenthood are mere creations of the state and that parental rights in no form or shape whatsoever preexisted the Meyer decision in 1922. Um, I don't think that's a fair characterization of the state of play. And obviously, Dobbs did require and, re, and, and state very clearly that when examining non-enumerated rights, rights that are not expressly stated in the U.S. Constitution, that the court would look to history and to tradition. And I don't think you can separate that statement from the fact that throughout, you know, throughout the history of the United States, the government has not exercised a heavy hand with respect to the relationships between parents and their children. Uh, we don't have an exceptionally, you don't have an exceptionally well-developed state in many of the western uh, states of the U.S., uh, which which came along uh, after the fact. Uh, you simply don't have a historical record of the government intervening in a substantial way, and I think the history, the stroke will bear that out. And so, um, I, I just fundamentally this occurred in 1920. Leave decisions about their lives and well-being
2: up to them. It's going to uh, leave the decision put the the decision in the hands of some adult or another. And I guess you know why ought we to think that state officials, whether they're teachers or student uh, uh, social workers or judges, why ought we to think that they would be typically better at making decisions on children's behalf than? Again, let's let's assume' fit parents. but why would they be better than than fit parents?
3: Uh, I don't think they are, and uh, haven't uh, suggested that. Um, you know, it's often said that parents know best uh, about you know what's good for children, and it's worth noting that that's actually a self-contradictory assertion. To make that kind of assessment, that parents know best, the person who says it would themselves have to know what's best for children, and evaluate parental decision making relative to their, uh, you know, perfect wisdom about what's best for children. Um, but to say I know best, therefore I can judge that parents know best, is obviously self contradictory. We don't know who is best. We can guess uh, based on s- certain structural aspects of decisions that need to be made. Who might be in the best position uh, to make that call or maybe you know some kind of cooperative decision making is called for. So Ryan noted that you know parents know are, are the most invested in their children in general, certainly true. Uh, parents also have individualized knowledge about individualized aspects of their children's character and experiences. Um, in uh, contrast, other people, not parents, generally have uh, expertise on matters that are uh, subject of scientific research. Uh, so they're experts in education and medical care. We wouldn't say that you know parents know best, therefore they should decide if a child needs surgery, right because there are people who study medicine and are trained to make these calls. Um, and so given the medical decision might involve cooperative decision-making, which parents says, well, this is what I know about my child based on living with my child. Uh, and I want to make sure that my child gets the best, uh, care, the best treatment because I love my child and you don't. Um, and doctors can say, well, okay. And based on the medical literature, I can tell you this and this and this, and together we reach reached some kind of uh, decision about what the, what is the right thing to do with a child. So it's it's not an either or thing. Um, it's not uh, something as to which any of us should pretend to be omniscient. Uh, we're only guessing who is the best decision maker, but likely what is best for children in general is that there be some uh, separation of power, so to speak, some uh, division of decision-making authority or some shared responsibility for helping children navigate difficult situations.
2: Thanks. Uh, here's what I'd like to hear from both of you on this, uh, and Ryan, you can go go first. Uh, again, taking from the Q&A
0: here. Um, a lot of these if all
2: curricular decisions had to be unanimously approved by public school parents. So just as a matter of kind of um, designing the rules, and again, Ryan, we'll start with you. um, What should be the rule uh, that tells us uh, to what extent parents have a say in the uh, curricular content of government run schools?
0: Mm It's a great question, Rick. And I I do want to harken back to something Jim said, where he talked about the difference between expertise and responsibility. And I think those are two different concepts, obligation, responsibility, and expertise. You can be responsible as a parent, ultimately responsible for the care, upbringing, and education of your child, but rely on the expertise of others to help you discharge that obligation and responsibility. And this is a very common concept in our society. Where the person who's, or the, the place where the responsibility or obligation is ultimately located, that person or that institution will ultimately rely on expertise to help them discharge that obligation. And I think in that sense, parental rights are a negative right against the state interfering with the discharge by parents of those obligations. And here's where I want to map that onto your question, uh, with respect to education. Now, I do agree with you that no, no school could function if every curricular decision had to be made by a majority vote, or not a majority vote, but a unanimous vote of every parent who had a, a stake in that school. And that's not where I think parental rights affect the curricular decision-making. I think rather, you can take some of the examples that we have seen in cases that we've been involved with or have assisted with uh, to point out where those distinctions lie. For instance, in Nevada... Uh, we were, we worked with a, a young man uh, who was required to take a course prior to graduation in which he had to identify every area in his life where he experienced privilege. And then he had to label those areas, race, gender, religion, sex, on down the line. He had to label those places. And then he had to explain to his classmates Uh, whether he was a member of the oppressed or a member of the oppressor group with respect to these characteristics. Now, I would argue, and I think that Jim Ho, by the way, and his Oliver uh, concurrence in the Fifth Circuit would agree, that that constitutes a form of indoctrination. That constitutes a form of compelled speech, where students are being not just educated in concepts, but compelled to accept and imbibe and internalize very, very controversial views of human nature. And those views, in very many cases, will conflict with the ability and the power and authority of parents to engage the formation of their children. I think when you deal with curriculum decisions that don't just just teach subject matter, but indoctrinate, but require students to affirm an idea that is controversial, and in many cases goes contrary to parents' views of how best to raise their children, That's a place where not just the First Amendment, but also parental rights may have a say, and I think should have a say. So that's a very concrete example, I believe, of how parental rights can intersect with our current moment uh, in our public schools. Jim, how about you?
3: Uh, Well, that's a a realm in which I think talk of rights is not very uh, helpful to children. Um, And I would note a couple of things. First if the concern is uh, state control over children's minds. Uh, It's worth noting that even if a child attends public school, uh, parents will have exclusive control over more than 80% of the child's awake life. (laughs) If you do the math uh, and figure out the number of hours a child spends in school per year over the course of 18 years, it's less than 20%. Uh, So if parents cannot, in that other 80% of the child's awake time, communicate their views, discuss them with the child explain why they as parents think differently uh, and engage the child's own thinking about that, um, then I wonder what's going on uh, in the family. My concern when I heard, you know, Ryan talk about this exercise was just, you know, whether this is upsetting for, for a child in a way that's unhealthy or unproductive. And so that's the conversation I would rather have uh, with school officials. You know, is this, uh, have, have you some sense of how children are reacting to this? Is this demeaning to them? Is this hurtful to them in some way or does it end up being uh, you know a good learning experience for them? You shouldn't be doing things forcing them to do things uh, just for ideological reasons. It should be a pedagogical um, a choice that's being made and one that uh, is evidence-based that you know turns out to be a good experience for them.
2: Jim, sticking with you, and I'm, I'm thinking back to you know work that you've done over the years on um, on the, uh, the the regulation of religious schools in particular. Um, the previous discussion was about curricular decisions about public uh, institutions or government-run schools. Where does your thinking about um, this the nexus of child, parent, and state take you when it comes to? Uh, the independence that religious schools should, or perhaps should not, have in um, in determining their own curricula, uh, regardless of what the state
3: schools are doing.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, and I've written more recently about homeschooling, uh, which is you know perhaps in the same basket, um, just with more parental control than choosing which private school your children uh, might go to. Um, and I you know support. The notion of school choice and having a marketplace of schools from which uh, parents can choose, um, motivated by their concern for their child's welfare. I value, um, you know, different styles of learning. Homeschooling certainly presents some advantages in terms of flexibility and child driven learning uh, and so forth. but, uh, you know, any reasonable person, I think, would have to concede that giving any person's monopoly control over the lives of very vulnerable, dependent people uh, is problematic, and that uh, we certainly recognize that with adults who are under a guardianship. Uh, guardians typically have to check in with the court and uh, you know report how the ward is doing. Um, and uh, so we should have some more oversight, some more accountability, some more check, Uh, just, you know, again, this idea of of shared responsibility uh, to make sure children are doing okay educationally and uh, perhaps even more compellingly uh, physically um, because uh, homeschooling in particular uh, creates opportunity for uh, parents um, who, you know, are not able to care for their children well to disguise that, to uh, conceal that from... From anyone who could help uh, children, so I think we've gone too far in the direction of deregulation. I mean, now there's virtually no meaningful uh, oversight or accountability with private forms of education. So that's where I'm I'm I stand today, which is the same as where I, I was uh, a quarter century ago when I started writing about children's education.
2: Yeah, uh, Ryan, a very uh, a variation on the on the theme here. You know, this is the this is actually the 50th anniversary of the Supreme Court's decision in Yoder. Um, and uh, Yoder's an interesting opinion in various ways, but it, it is often read to suggest that at some point, um, you know, parents do have some kind of autonomy when it comes to selecting their children's uh, educational course. But for you, what um, to what extent would you, Permit or uh, welcome or authorize state regulation of uh, programming in homeschools and religious schools. Um, Mm -hmm. Presumably, you uh, would—I don't want to put words in your um, mouth—would support a right to you know parents to direct the upbringing of their children the education of their children. But presumably, you'd be open to some forms of regulation. So, where would you find that line? Mm
0: -hmm. It's a great question, Rick, and I will tell you that. As with many things in the law, uh, the question of parental rights uh, in one way can be characterized as a question of who decides. Justice Gorsuch wrote that in his concurrence in the vaccine mandate cases about a year ago. That was in the context of federal regulatory power. Who decides? In that case, it was a question between the administrative state and Congress. Now, here, I think parental rights dictate uh, the answer to that is that parents, who have a fundamental right and obligation to control and provide for the education of their kids should be presumed to be the correct deciders of how to educate their children. And that would include whether that be homeschooling or private education. And so from that perspective, the state should have a very minimal role in determining and governing the content and curriculum of those private educational choices. Now, obviously, there are allowances that have to be made, everything up to a point, correct? If a parent is completely neglecting the education of his or her child, Uh, that is an area where I think on the outer boundary, the state may have something to say. But there's very little evidence that I have seen that for the most part, homeschooling parents and parents who commit their kids to religious curriculum educational institutions uh, are neglecting the education of their kids. Take the Yoder case. For example, uh, the, uh, the Amish community in Wisconsin completely removed their children from education after the eighth grade. And yet the court found that that was not an instance of parental neglect that required the state to step in and force those kids to attend school up to the age of 16. Uh, and I think that's, that's an example of how uh, the state should entrust parents with these decisions and the presumption the dial should be set in favor of parental decision-making In these instances.
2: Uh, We're getting short on time. Uh, I'm very grateful to both of you uh, for this discussion. Uh, Jim, if I could give you uh, one last question. uh, I'm pulling this from the from the participants Q&A. What would you what would you make of a proposal uh, or would you would you think it was normatively attractive or constitutionally permissible for um, uh, states to basically say that uh, Parents have to get renewable licenses uh, in order to have kind of custody and you know presumption decision making authority uh, over their children's over decisions about their children and and this license presumably would be kind of renewable every couple of years with a certain um, uh, standard of evidence and so on. What what would
3: you think about that? A licensing regime. Uh, on the whole, it sounds like a bad idea. Um... If there's anything good about it, it's that it might make parents more cognizant of their responsibility and think, oh, I should be trying to be better at this. Um, I have an obligation to do that, whereas parents' rights thinking, I think, uh, you know, dispels that kind of notion, just I have a right to do whatever I want. So, you know, why do I have to prove anything to uh, to anyone um, I also think the state ought to be more discerning upfront at the time of a child's birth, um, and not uh, licensing that in a sense, um, not you know investigating every birth parent, um, but at least uh, you know being more cautious about conferring uh, legal parenthood on people with uh, a history of maltreatment um, and. Uh, this is something some five states now have taken a step toward by having something called birth match, where birth records are matched against child maltreatment uh, databases. Um, so, you know, philosophers have proposed licensing of parents and, you know, perhaps renewable, but uh, that's fantasy and not a good fantasy, I don't think. Yeah. Um, Rick, I'll
0: say that Jim and I agree. That's a bad idea.
2: <laughs> I, I I figured you would uh really quickly Ryan because I know we're short on time um it's uh you know it, it there's a there's a long tradition of folks uh in and around the federal society being skeptical of unenumerated rights. um Justice Scalia in the Troxel case uh pointed out that parents rights aren't there any more than abortion rights are at least in the text um so what's um what's a sort of uh a textualist, to do about that uncomfortable reality?
0: Well, I, I agree with the Dobbs majority. Uh, we're not seeking to undermine the notion that there can be rights uh, reserved to the people and even protected by the U.S. Constitution and the 14th Amendment that aren't expressly stated in the Constitution. Now, I understand that uh, Justice Scalia uh, had some issues with that. I understand that there's some current justices who, who don't see it that way as well. Uh, but I think that if you if you give a fair, and again, we don't have time for this discussion right now because this could this could be a, a webinar in and of itself, and probably should be. But I think it's fair to say that the Dobbs majority, at least with respect to how you evaluate and assess the existence of unenumerated rights, was pretty much right on in saying you have to look at the history and tradition of our nation and cabin those very carefully. It's not a freewheeling analysis, nor should it be.
2: Great. Well, um, Ryan and Jim, I'm grateful to both of you. And I'm going to hand it back to Kaya now. And uh, thanks to all of you for joining us on this uh, on this webinar.
1: Absolutely. On behalf of the Federal Society, I want to thank our experts for the benefit of their valuable time today. And I want to thank our audience for joining and participating. Uh, we welcome listener feedback at info at fed-soc.org. And as always, please keep an eye on our website and your emails for announcements about other upcoming virtual events. Thank you all for joining us today. We're adjourned.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federal Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.